everybody, I'm Katie. And I'm Rhiannon. And welcome to Haunting Cases. Good afternoon, Rhiannon. I'm awake. <laughs> the sunlight is out. <laughs> uh, Good afternoon. I've been awake for quite a while now. <laughs> Not awake enough, apparently, to, to say it right the first time. But <laughs> I got started with, like, finishing off uh, the TV show Lucifer last night, and I was up until 6 a.m. And, like, it was one of those, Ooh. like, things that I was like, oh, my God, this is, like really intense like i'm in the final season and then i looked at my phone like ah, it's six <laughs> went running off to bed i'm like oh my god my mom's gonna ask questions in the morning like why are you still awake i'm like Ooh. all right d last week you asked me a question. I don't know why this is my accent of choice for today. <laughs> <laughs> Regarding issuing an Amber Alert. And I went and found it on the uh, Office of Justice Programs website, which is the OJP.gov. And the summary from the Department of Justice recommended uh, criteria to meet an Amber Alert is that there is reasonable belief to law enforcement that an abduction has occurred. The law enforcement agency believes that the child is in imminent danger or bodily harm, injury, or death. Um, there is enough descriptive information about the victim and the abduction for law enforcement to issue the Amber Alert to assist in recovering the child. And the abduction is of a child that is 17 years or younger. The child's name and other criterial uh, data elements, including the child's abduction flag, have been entered into the National Crime Information Center system. So I think the only reason why there wasn't an Amber Alert issued when Patricia took the kids was because the individual that was presumed to cause the harm to the girls and had a record of causing harm to the girls was Yasser. So mm -hmm. with that information provided to officers, it feels like the reason to issue an Amber Alert wouldn't fully be there. Plus, I believe at this point, Amina was 18 and Sarah oh, was okay. 17. So it gave a little bit of that, like, do we issue it? Do we not? But for the most part, like, if they knew the previous history of the family, which it sounds like they did. Yeah. Um, I don't think they would have felt comfortable using resources to issue an Amber Alert when the girls were in safe hands. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense now. Okay, good, good. I'm <laughs> glad I cleared that up. <laughs> yeah, thanks for answering the question. Much much appreciated. All right. It's going to be like an awkward cutoff back there now that I'm like looking at it because I had to like pause and reread through that because once again, the mushmouth strikes. <laughs> it's all good. Mainly because I'm still, like, dry as a bone because I just woke up. <laughs> <laughs> Got to hydrate. Yes, ma'am. Hydration is key to having a <laughs> podcast. And I've got, like, three cups of fluid around me right now. That sounds really wrong, actually. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm saying that. Like, I have fluid around me. No, I got, like, tea, water, and then there's, like, a half drink in, like, Dr. Pepper over here. <laughs> so, we have choices. We have options to go to. Options available. Options are available. Yeah, I thought about giving myself some options, getting some juice, but I just went with the, the classic water for today. Water is very tasty. Very good. It is. It is. All right. Are we ready to get started? <laughs> yeah, let's get moving and shaking. While we understand that some individuals listen for the entertainment aspect of true crime, it's important to remember that these are real people with families and friends who may still be suffering from their loss. These stories are not meant to open old wounds or cause further emotional damage to those involved. We remind you to please be respectful, do not dox, or contact those involved with cases. While paranormal occurrences and urban legends may be sources of tourism, please be considerate if you visit one of these locations. Do not engage in trespassing and be sure to ask for permission if you plan on recording. Be aware of your surroundings and travel safely. The cases discussed in this podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In this episode, we will be discussing cases involving sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual assault, please reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673. Now, back to the show. Okie dokie. So, I guess we'll start off with some vocab lessons from Katie. Now, unfortunately, I only have one vocab this week. Um, if there are questions, please feel free to email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com and I can further explain some of the processes that happen in here. Maybe it'll be a full episode, maybe it won't, who knows, but let me know. Um, so this week I have expert witness as our vocab lesson. Now, a expert witness is an individual whom the court determines to possess knowledge relevant to the trial that is non-expected of the average person. So this would be like you or me sitting in and being called into court to testify on something that we have knowledge of that a regular average Joe wouldn't. So for example, like if I'm testifying in court as a forensic scientist, I'm testifying on my field, my findings, the evidence, and how I processed it. That is something that makes me an expert witness because somebody would not know how I processed that or how it was processed to the average Joe. Kind of makes cool. sense? Yep. That makes right. sense to me. Awesome. So... Without further ado, have you heard the name Ray Crone? No, I don't think I have. Okay. Well, 
I'm going to try to do this to the best of my ability, similar to other ones, where I kind of tell the perspective of both the victims rather than the actual killer. That might change when we get into serial killers later, but for the most part, I'm going to try to keep it that way. So our story starts out at the CVS Lounge and Restaurant in downtown Phoenix, Arizona. It is owned by Hank Arandondo and managed by Kim Ancona. Arandondo mentioned how Ancona had a nice and honest personality, which matched exactly what he was looking for with his bar staff. On December 29th of 1991, Ancona was closing the bar at its usual time, shortly after 1 a.m. As per custom of Arandondo, he called her to make sure that everything was going okay and there were no problems that evening. Anacona responded by saying, no, Hank, I, <laughs> I don't have any problems. I know you're tired. Go to sleep. Rest. I'll take care of it. The next morning, Arandondo arrived at the bar and noticed that the door was ajar. Arandondo knew that the bartender or himself didn't leave the door open. Knowing something was obviously wrong just to begin with, he ran to check the safe, but no money was missing. He then proceeded to the kitchen, checking to see if anyone was there, but no one was in there either. He then went to check the bathroom, starting with the men's room, and this is where Arandondo found Ancona lying in the bathroom dead. The evidence at the scene suggested that the killer had grabbed a knife from the kitchen, forced Anacona into the men's room, and stabbed her to death. The knife was then placed in the trash can under the liner. On the way out, the suspect left a shoe print on the freshly cleaned kitchen floor. Forensics identified the shoe as a Converse brand sneaker, size 9.5. Additionally, hairs were found on Anacona's body that were black and not hers, as well as a bite mark on her upper chest area, where the killer had bitten through Anacona's top, leaving a bite impression on her skin. Now, I saw in a couple other articles that there were actually two bite marks. There was one on her shoulder and then actually one on her breast. To interject really quickly, the shoe size, I'm assuming you mean uh, men's shoe size or is it unisex? Do you know? I believe it's men's shoe size from what okay. I was seeing. Um, I was just wondering. Yeah. That, I, I presume it's men's shoe size. Upon further investigation, forensics also found two drinks at the bar. One of the glasses had Anacona's fingerprints, and the other had prints that were not clear enough for identification. Mm. Meaning they could have been smudged, because fingerprints are really interesting to work with. Like, they come out really well on, like, glass surfaces and, like, non-permeable like permeable surfaces. So, cans, glasses, and those types of things. But ultimately, like, unless you, like, put your hand down straight and then, like, take it off, which is a normal occurrence, which is why we always take fingerprints regardless, prints will typically look really good. However, there's always that environmental factor that if you put, like, your hand on something and then you slide it, you're going to mm. slide that whole print. And it's not going to come out pretty, which I'm presuming uh. that's part of what was going on. According to the Forensic Files episode, Once Bitten, in season seven, uh, season eight, episode seven, where is where I coincidentally got most of my information. Um, 
when they showed some of those fingerprints, they were very smudged on the sides and kind of like towards the base where a lot of that detail oh. is for identification with prints. So it makes things difficult to ID with mm. the little amount of information that you get from a print that's smudged. Unfortunately, with this evidence of the fingerprint on the glasses at the bar, the theory began that she must have known the person and invited them into the bar after hours against company policy. Mm. Robbery was ruled out as a motive as there was no money missing from the bar safe or Anacona's purse. Investigators did, however, find an address book within her purse with the name and number of one of the bar's regular customers, Ray Crone. Crone was a 35-year-old Air Force veteran with no prior criminal record. However, Aaron Dondo mentioned that Crone was not well-liked by people and he always felt that there was something off about him. The police began to receive stories on how Anacona displayed a romantic interest in Crone, and several bar employees told police that Anacona had a date with Crone planned for the night that she was murdered. However, when Crone was questioned by police... He denied any claims regarding the relationship and that the two were just acquaintances. Crone even says that Anacona was a nice, congealed person, very friendly and outgoing, that he liked her personality and her bubbliness. However, there was no relationship. Crone also denied the claims that there were any plans for the two to meet that night at the bar. Crone also had an alibi for the evening of the murder having shared a house with a co-worker who stated that Crone was home the night of the murder, asleep in his bed. Police then began to consider that if all the evidence they had at the scene could be tied to Crone, that they would surely have their killer. Photographs were taken of the bite wound on Anacona's upper chest during her autopsy, which showed that the killer had a distinctive bite pattern with the left tooth, the front left one, like, I'm pointing at it. Obviously, our audience can't see, but the top front left tooth had a distinctive marker with it protruding further than the line of the rest of the teeth. Police began to question Crone. They began to notice how his front left tooth protruded slightly forward in front of the rest of his teeth, looking similar to the bite mark left on Anacona's chest, to which police jumped to the conclusion that his teeth matched the bite mark left on Anacona's chest. Willingly, Crone agreed to provide an impression of his teeth uh, by biting into a piece of styrofoam, which is a type of like quick casting because it's soft and it's still stable enough material that allows you to get an impression very quickly. Mm. A forensic odontologist then examined a series of bite mark impressions from men who knew Anacona finding only one in which the left front tooth was clearly extending, similar to the impression left on the body. And on New Year's Eve of 1991, Crone recounts that he heard brakes squealing, doors slamming, and he looked out to see that there was a police van unloading with officers, armed, and all of those guns were pointed at him. He was thrown to the ground, handcuffed, and charged with murder, kidnapping, and sexual assault. At his trial in 1992, Crone maintained his innocence, claiming to be asleep in his bed at the time of the crime. However, expert witness Dr. Raymond Lawson, a forensic odontologist and senator in the Nevada State Legislate, 
testified for the prosecution using video evidence to superimpose Crohn's bite mark over the bite mark left on Anacona's body, stating that the bite marks found on Anacona's matched the impressions of the ones Crohn had left on the styrofoam. However, this wasn't the only evidence that was held against Crohn. There was also saliva left on Anacona's shirt, which upon testing came back with inconclusive results as far as like DNA comparison or any DNA per se. However, the test did reveal that the perpetrator had type O blood, which was the same type of blood as Crohn. During and after the trial, the press called Crohn the snaggletooth killer, which I thought was absolutely heartbreaking and very insulting. Yeah, it is. Um, along with that and the evidence presented to the jury, Crone was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death, along with a consecutive 21-year term of imprisonment, respectively. Crone, however, was not found guilty of the sexual assault, which I found interesting that he was convicted of the murder but not the sexual assault, so hmm. it feels like something's already off to begin with. Is that based on evidence from the sexual assault case, or what was it that led to that? Well, the sexual assault, what I presume was a sexual assault, if what that news media source that I read was correct, with the bite mark being over the breast, that's technically sexual assault. Oh, I got it. Okay. So, to convict him on the murder of her, but not the sexual assault with bite mark evidence, it feels... It already feels off. Yeah, that's strange since you were saying one of the main forms of evidence they had against him was the bite mark evidence. And if that is what the sexual assault case is based on, you'd think they would have charged him with that as well. Yeah. Anyway, continuing forward, Crone spent three years on death row for the death of Ancona, to which he began to form his own opinions regarding the bite mark impression used to convict him. The first being that you could take a sharp object, stick it into the skin a couple of places, and have someone testify that that's a bite mark and it matches him. Crone was obviously very upset with the outcome of the case and just confused as to how the justice system had failed him. All death penalty cases in the state of Arizona are automatically appealed to the state Supreme Court, however, and the bite mark comparison video used in the prosecution's testification provided the proper evidence for Crone to appeal his case, under the reason that the defense team was not given enough time to view the tape prior to the trial to make a proper rebuttal against it. Chris Plord, who specializes in special forensics cases, was asked to represent Crone during his appeal. Plord was already very skeptical of the case and its finding, having heard about it through media sources as well as other grapevines of the criminal justice system, to which he hired his own forensics team to re-examine the evidence, to which they discovered the hairs found on Anacona's body were Mongolian hairs, meaning they were somebody that was of Asian descent or Native American descent. It was also found that Crone wore a ten and a half shoe contrary to the nine and a half shoe print found at the scene of the crime. The defense brought in Dr. Skip Sperber, a past president of the American Academy of Forensic Odontologists, to examine the bite wound evidence. What Sperber found came back as a shock to individuals. 
he had seen this evidence before, as it had been sent to him prior to the first trial. He stated that upon seeing the evidence, it was obvious that there were too many inconsistencies for the bite marks to be a positive comparison to Crone. Sperber told his colleague working for the Arizona prosecutor's office that the evidence was exceptionally weak due to few distinctive markers left on the bite wound to compare to Crone's cast in the styrofoam. Sperber also took a cast of Crone's teeth to which he diagrammed on a transparent overlay Upon comparing the two images of the bite mark on Akona to the overlay, it was found that the bite mark evidence showed a distinctive separation between the two front teeth, whereas Crone had no separation between his two front teeth. To Sperber, it was obvious that there were no similarities between the two bite marks. Crone was obviously ecstatic about this news and that the new expert witness said that the bite mark evidence didn't match him. However, Rawson repeated his testimony from the first trial into the second trial, saying there's no doubt that the bite mark is from Ray Crone, to which a line of forensic odontologists disagreed, stating that Crone was not the biter. However, the jury agreed with the prosecution's expert witness again, and in 1996, Crone was convicted on an expert bite mark testimony of Rawson however, was sentenced to life in prison with new-sighted doubts if Crone was the true killer or not. Prior to the second trial, however, Rawson had stated to a fellow forensic odontologist at a like conference, a Dr. Richard Suveron, that he was in too deep with the Crone case, that he knew he had made a mistake, and he basically just had to go with it. However, upon asking Rawson, he denies that the conversation had ever happened between him and Dr. Suveron. In 2001, a new law offered some help to Crone. While I found this interesting, uh, Arizona was one of the first states to allow a post-conviction DNA testing. Oh, Which allows uh, convicts, people that have been convicted, to go back and request that their DNA be tested again against evidence. Wow. Which is really cool. So using the blood found on Anacona's pants, a DNA test was ordered and yielded unanticipated results. The blood on the jeans was not Anacona's as they had originally thought, and it was not Crohn's either. This DNA evidence was entered into the National DNA Database with profiles of more than 1 million convicts across the country. To which the database came back with a match to a 35-year-old Native American, Kenneth Phillips, who was currently in prison for child molestation. Wow. Yeah. At the time of the murder, Phillips lived only 600 yards away from the CBS lounge, walking distance. When interviewed by police, Phillips made a startling admission that the morning after Anacona's murder, he woke from an alcoholic blackout to find his hands covered with blood. He then saw the news of the murder on the TV and started to piece together the missing events from his blackout the previous night. Phillips' uh, fingerprints were found among the unknown fingerprints left inside the bathroom where the murder took place. His shoe size was a nine and a half, matching the impression left on the kitchen floor. And his bite mark impression had a tooth protruding from the rest of his teeth, including the space. 
After serving more than 10 years in prison, on April 8th of 2002, Crone was released from prison, and on April 24th, 2002, the district attorney's office formally dismissed all charges filed against him in the death of Anacona, placing the new charges of murder and sexual assault on Phillips. Crone became the 100th person exonerated from death row since the reinstatement of capital punishment in the United States in 1976. After his exoneration, Crone founded the organization of Witness to Innocence with Sister Helen Prejean in 2003. He also speaks across the nation and urges states to abolish the death penalty. Ray now lives with his partner Cheryl Nail in Tennessee and devotes his life to improving the criminal justice system that failed him. Crone has also stated, I would not trust the state to execute a person for committing a crime against another person. Continuing with, I know how the system works. It's not about justice, fairness, or equality. Any chance I can, whether I start with one or two people or an auditorium filled with people, I'm going to tell them what happened to me. Because if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. Oh, man. And that's the story of Ray Crone. <laughs> so I do have some statistics to share. Um, in fast fact format from the innocenceproject.org. The first DNA exoneration took place in 1989. As of today, 375 DNA exonerations have happened. The amount of times people pled guilty to crimes that they couldn't commit was 44 out of 375 people. 69% of wrongful convictions involved misidentification from eyewitness testimony. 43% involved misapplication of forensic science use. 29% involved false confessions. 17% involved informants. And the demographics of the 375 individuals who have been exonerated is that 225 of those individuals, 60%, were African American. 117, 31%, were Caucasian. 29, 8% were Latina or Latino. Two, the 1% was Asian American descendant. One, or below 1% at this point, were Native American descendants. And another one or below 1% identified as other. Hmm. Oh my God. Yeah, I think uh, the statistics are very interesting. It's definitely not what I would expect as far as people being exonerated after they were convicted of a crime and how, I don't know that I should say how common that is, but I guess how many cases have happened like in total number and then just the percentages you were reading off about evidence that was used to convict them, how, like the percentages of all that of exonerated people was really interesting definitely not something i would expect yeah i didn't really expect it either but i i also remember hearing about this case from my forensic science professor in college because i believe that she she was either coming in to her field when this was first starting or she actually helped with the exoneration process for crumb but i can't remember exactly what was going on um 
I remember listening to this case for the first time and I went, wow. There, there are some people that really do not have ethics when it comes to expert witness testimony for forensic science, and that's absolutely unacceptable. Yeah, I was shocked when it came out that he had different shoe size, for one, and then all the things you said about the bite mark evidence, how when they brought an actual... Or another, I should say, another expert witness to testify that they specifically said there's no possible way this could be the same like this evidence could be conclusive i guess i should say and not only that but they brought more and and multiple experts concluded the same exact thing and still they believed he was the killer like that shocks me that so many experts could say this evidence is not good enough that you're using for this conviction and they still went ahead with it uh that is very scary that an innocent person like that could be convicted on evidence that wasn't even that strong and i don't know that's just it's really hard to hear it's not it's definitely not something you want to hear so i'm really happy he started that organization to try to help with this issue so that hopefully we can over time adjust how things work so that people who are innocent are not convicted and heaven forbid are not put on death row for something they did not do but i think that's a really tough issue since we're talking about a whole system here the whole criminal justice system Mm -hmm. that's a lot to tackle well it's like when we covered this case it was really much just deep diving into morals and ethics and what you need to be willing to say like i messed up on this or Mm -hmm. i don't know in a courtroom and To not do that as an expert witness and to possibly condemn somebody to death, per se, because even Crone faced the death penalty to begin with, to actually put that out as being 100% that's a match is absolutely unacceptable because there is no 100% in forensic science. There is very rarely absolutes, and we're taught that if there's even the slightest chance that like something might not add up correctly, like you check it and you double check it. And that's why Mm -hmm. we have like ACE V methods, which are like you analyze, you have somebody do a another analyzation and then you have a third person come in and verify it, especially when it comes to comparative forensics, which is what that bite mark evidence basically was. It was a comparative between two subjects and a known and a known and to which a lot of individuals, even including renowned Sperber, he said that there's no way there wasn't enough detail in the evidence. And he even mentioned, like, going further in, that there's, like, a scale that you can rate on, like, 1 to 10. 10 being there's so much detail there that it's basically, you can get an identical match. Mm-hmm. Or, like, 1 being on the scale that there's nothing there. And he rated that bite mark as being at best a three or a four wow yeah and like even looking because like forensic files is amazing they actually show you pictures um i don't know if that's amazing or not for me that's amazing but (laughs) for other people that might be a little horrifying a little bit too much but like seeing how that bite mark and the bite mark impression that was given from Ray Crone were like lined up. You can even see differences at the 
like transparency point where it's like superimposing the image on top of that bite mark. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do you line those up other than like maybe they turned it a little bit or there might even been like some very, very poor forensic practices where they just edited that bite mark just a little bit to make it follow what they wanted, which is mm. horrible. You do not dry lab in forensic science. Absolutely not. Yeah, definitely seems like there was some not great practices going on in this case. For sure. Oh, man. But yeah, that's the story of Ray Crumb. He's free now, and from what I know, he still goes around and talks. I believe that he actually was at an Arizona conference back in, like, 2018, 2019. I know it was prior to COVID, but I was, like, living over there. I think he was over there for a little bit. Um, I highly recommend hearing him speak. He is very clear with how he feels and how it was for him to go through that process and for him to come back out with, like, not having, like, a super high grudge against the justice system is absolutely remarkable because I couldn't be that person. Oh, yeah, me too. I don't think I could either. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Listeners, definitely go check out uh, more of his work. I'm sure Katie can either drop some links in the show notes or check out the resources. Uh, I'm sure it'll be some information on that will be listed in the references, of course. So definitely go check that out. And uh, thank you again for sharing. That was a, a great story and a nice change to <laughs> a nice have something change. A, a little bit lighter than usual. That that was nice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little bit lighter. It's it's just it's murder. Um, regardless, we're probably still going to have murder happening within this podcast, but. At least this one had a somewhat happy ending, whereas, like, other people that are in his position don't necessarily always have that. Yeah, definitely. Okie dokie. It's your turn. (laughs) Alrighty. Alrighty, let's move on to our paranormal side of things now. So today I have for you our first listener-suggested episode topic. (gasps) Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) So for those of you listening right now, please send in any suggestions you have of what topics you'd like to cover, whether that's on Katie's end or mine. We're always looking for suggestions. And again, as always, our email is at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. I'm excited. <laughs> was this an email? Did we actually get our first email? Did I miss this? No, it wasn't an email. Okay. It was a, a family member telling me over the phone, or emailing my personal email, I should say, not our mm. email. Yeah. Yeah, but just thought I'd, I'd, I'd still call it a listener suggested episode since they are a listener and they did sh- suggest it. Um, and hopefully that will encourage other listeners to pop in and suggest <laughs> things too. <laughs> Alright, so before I dig into the main story, I wanted up front to really quick cover a big superstition that is directly relevant to the story and was very common historically, so I felt like uh, before we dig into it, I just wanted to bring this up. 
Have you ever wondered why women were considered to be bad luck when brought on ships? Oh, that's an actual question. <laughs> I thought that you were like reading me a poem like you did with Pinky Pinky because that's the way that you started it. I'm like, cool, I'm giving the story. <laughs> um, if I remember correctly, it was because women were seen as like either innocents or they were like witches per se so they could curse the ship to actually sink if they were on ships if i remember correctly it might not be 100 percent accurate i remember i do know why but it's it's not clear so go ahead and tell me <laughs> i could believe the the witch theory especially back around like salem witch trial era I'm sure I could I could believe that. Theory. Yeah, I'm like I'm looking forward uh, to covering that one. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, man. Um, but yeah, uh, the sources I found uh, they didn't state specific centuries they were referring to. The story I'll be telling you starts in the 1700s to be exact, but the sources detailing the superstition did not specify a specific century. But what I was able to dig up on the issue is that sea captains and sailors often believed that having women on board a ship would anger the sea gods, possibly because it distracts the men on the ship from the sea. Um, In addition, there was also the honest concern that even if it did not anger the sea gods per se, that it would still distract the crew and a distracted crew would not perform well. So whether they were more having an issue with the honest reality of the situation or more having the issue with the sea gods, I'm not sure, but I found both of those reasoning in a few different sources, or a couple different sources, I should say. And so for this reason, women have historically been forbidden on both military and merchant sea vessels, and uh, if... It was, it was believed that if a woman was brought aboard, uh, like I said, it would anger the sea gods, but thus revenge would be taken against the ship in the form of intimidating waves and violent storms. So to avoid the superstition, a lot of women who wanted to sail would actually dress as men so that they could get onto the ship without causing a whole fuss. <laughs> There was actually one article I read that told the story of an event where a ship in the Middle Ages set sail with women on board uh, to go against this common belief. However, they ended up hitting a huge storm, and when that happened, they started tossing all the females overboard to try to stop the storm. No! Yes! (laughs) Oh my god, no! That was my face too when I read that! Oh my god, that's fucking horrifying. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but no, yeah, that was my reaction to <laughs> it's definitely my face when I read that. <sighs> uh, it detailed that in this particular incident, over 60 women drowned from being tossed overboard before the storm ended up killing most of the crew anyways. Ugh, so not a good way to go. <laughs> Yeah, so it was definitely a major concern and belief, at least in the 18th and 19th centuries, for sure. I'm not sure how far back historically it goes, uh, but I definitely found records of at least in the 18th and 19th centuries, this being a common belief. 
another superstition about women that I came across really quick is that bare-chested women would shame nature and thus calm its anger. So that's why you see a lot of naked, topless women figureheads on boats. And more specifically, you will often find them on the prow of the boat, so the front of it, because they were also believed to be good navigators. And so if you have the combination of a lady, and she also has no shirt on, you're gonna calm the sea and have good navigation, apparently. So, but not any real ladies. I was gonna say, like, it's a catch-22. If you're a woman, you get on the boat, and you just strip naked. Like, <laughs> is that the loophole? Is that how that works? <laughs> Maybe. Yes, I, I can't go back in time and test the theory. Maybe that is the loophole. <laughs> to a time machine I might get a little bit of stage fright and not go through with it but <laughs> it's okay we all have performance issues <laughs> they make a pill for that now you know right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh my gosh but yes Oh my god. Naked chested women were apparently good luck. So maybe that's the catch 22. If you're a lady and you take your shirt off, maybe you're allowed on the ship. I don't know. <laughs> you just gotta stand at the prow, though, okay? Yeah, don't, don't turn, turn around. around. <laughs> oh my god. Woo! Okay, let me just catch my breath for a second here before I go on. So now getting into the major story I wanted to bring to the table today. This event happened on February 13th, 1748, which was the day before Valentine's Day. And it's regarding the ship Lady Lovabond, which left port near Kent, England. And just a fun fact really quick, I did research this episode's topic on February 13th, 2022, so it's been quite a few years, but it was the anniversary of, of this happening. <laughs> I love it when that happens. And it's like, oh, okay. I know. Like when I read the date, I was like, wait, what? And I looked at the calendar and I was like, oh. <laughs> so I just wanted to throw that in here. Oh, but in any case, the Lady Love Bond was a three-mast schooner. Um, and it was on that day supposedly headed to Oporto, Portugal. It was taking its honeymoon voyage in celebration of the marriage of Captain Simon Reed and his wife, Anetta. However, the captain was unaware that his first mate, John Rivers, who also served as the best man during the wedding, was also in love with the bride. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a triangle you don't want. Oh, yeah. It does not bode well. It doesn't boat well. <laughs> <laughs> so while the crew was celebrating under the deck, or so, so the story goes, John Rivers took out the captain, or in some tellings, a sailor, 
with a blow to the head and then drove the ship into the Goodwin Sands. And the Goodwin Sands is a sandbar that's located between Kingsdown, Kent, and Pegwell Bay, and to this day is still one of the most dangerous stretches of the English Channel. There is no survivors, but supposedly River's mother testified that her son vowed to take revenge on the captain, even if it cost him his life. So this is the story that has thus resulted from the ship crashing into the Goodwin Sands, is that they were on their honeymoon voyage, which was, that was a factual thing, um, based on what I could find. (laughs) I couldn't dig up any, like hard evidence from the 1700s but from my sources it was known this was the honeymoon voyage uh however what exactly happened is under speculation since nobody survived to tell the tale a little bit about the goodwin sands since this is the location where this happened it is called the great swallower by locals and it is where over 1000 wrecks have been recorded since 1298 and another source actually claims 2,000 wrecks. However, it is believed that the total could be as high as 3,500 wrecks have taken place in this one location. Additionally, 50,000 people at least have been killed there in these shipwrecks, including hundreds of World War II airmen. And uh, just another little blip of something really scary that happened um, this time at this particular location. During the night of November 27th in 1703, a total of 13 ships and over 1,900 men in a single night were lost at sea due to a really bad storm. Some people believe that the sandbar was once an island called Lumia, and that there's rumors that perhaps a storm destroyed it in the year 1099, or another rumor that an abbot in Canterbury was supposedly uh, meant to maintain its seawalls and then didn't, and a storm ended up taking it out that way. However, geological evidence does not support that this was ever an island. And as far as the actual uh, physical nature of it, if to try to imagine what I'm discussing here, it's 8 to 15 meters below the water surface and then about 20 meters deep worth of sand on a chalk rock base. And during low tide, enough areas exposed that historically there was actually cricket matches played on the Goodwin Sands. So it's quite uh, a large area. And then during high tide, when ships try to move through it, it is possible that the sediment can move and suck the ship down into the sands, where the only part of the ship that is then supported is the stern, leading to the ship's back buckling and falling apart immediately wrecking the ship and taking all the sailors with it. So as you can imagine, this is a very dangerous area. Even to this day, it's very dangerous to pass through this section of the channel. And that is exactly why it has claimed so many lives and so many ships. Uh, So I briefly wanted to just give a little summary about the Goodwin Sands and what all it is. Um, So it makes a little bit more sense as to why John Rivers decided to drive it into the Goodwin Sands, knowing it would, well, maybe not why he decided to do it, but explains uh, why he would know that would wreck the ship by doing so. Now, in terms of what is the actual paranormal situation going on here? So the original event occurred on February 13th, 1748. And 50 years later, on that date, the ship Edinburgh recorded in its log that 
that it almost collided with a schooner with three masts, fitting the description of Lady Lovebond. They additionally specifically wrote that they heard sounds of celebration as the ship broke apart on the sands, and a couple sources actually indicated a second ship witnessed the same exact thing at the same time. So a rescue team was quickly dispatched, but no survivors or evidence of a recent shipwreck could be found. Now another 50 years passed, so now we're at 100 years past the original shipwreck event. Locals see a three-mast schooner moving towards the sands, and again, no evidence of a wreckage. 1848, we have the same thing happen again. Now, the last record of, of this happening, now in the year 1898, we see the same thing happen again. On the 200-year mark in 1948, Captain Bull Preswick describes seeing a ship similar to Lady Lovebond again, except this time it's described as having a green glow surrounding it. Now we're at 1998, so the last 50-year interval um, before the next one we're going to hit. And so at this point, it's almost the year 2000. A lot of people have heard this story and are really excited about it. So many onlookers ended up coming to the sands on this date to look for it and witness it. But the ship never showed. Now, I did find an old article from this time. It's in the Independent newspaper from the UK. And they stated that hotels and boarding houses in the nearby town of Deal were entirely booked with ghost hunters from America, Germany, and Italy, and everywhere in between. And 13 specific individuals, I presume <laughs> bribed, but I can't say for sure, a fishing boat captain to take them out at first light on Friday the 13th, following the route that Lady Lovabond took. <laughs> yeah, <your> face. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> first off, we're chasing a ghost ship. Yep. It's Friday the 13th. Oh, yeah. And you're going to one of the most dangerous channels possibly in the world. Are you? Do you need to have Zeus smite you too? Like, what else are you <laughs> wanting from this? I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> that has bad idea written all over it. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of my thinking too. <laughs> oh my god. I didn't see anything in the newspaper article about anything bad happening to them. So as far as I can tell, I think they all survived the encounter or potential encounter. But Lady, look <laughs> beyond their side. My God. She's like, I'm Seriously. holding this whole shit show together. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My God. And, and just the cherry on top here. Let me tell you this. Some believe now that Lady Lovabond requires a sacrifice in the form of a ship lost to the Goodwin Sands during the first two months of every year. So that totally could have been the sacrifice. <laughs> it was the right time period. They made it out alive, though. Okay. Ugh. However, if it makes you feel any better, the last ship lost was supposedly a small Italian merchant ship in 1948, but the crew escaped unharmed. Now, there are a few other ghost ships rumored to haunt the Goodwin Sands, as you can probably imagine with how many ships have gone down there. Uh, so I will briefly mention them here. There is supposed to be a Spanish 
galleon from the armada which was taken down in an attempted mutiny that can now be seen as a ghost ship the hms northumberland a frigate that was taken down during the great storm of 1703 with at least four other warships and their crews and finally a cross-channel paddle steamer named violet that went down with its crew in 1857 during a big snowstorm now i did try to do a little digging to see if i could find anything specifically relating to these specific ghost ships that were mentioned i couldn't come across a whole lot in terms of articles or observations and sightings of the spanish galleon and the hms northumberland however i did find there was a sighting of violet at the start of world war ii in which case a lookout on the east goodwin lightship saw an old-fashioned paddle steamer run aground on the goodwin sands and as is the case with our other famous ship a lifeboat was sent out immediately but there is no signs of a wreck and just a quick mention i was a little curious about the light ship it's specifically mentioned there uh, one of the sources did say that in terms of the goodwin sands since it's located in the middle of the channel and you can't really stick a, a lighthouse on it since it's not an island it's underneath the water instead they you and i don't I don't know if they're still using this to this day, but historically they were using what's called light ships, which is similar in function to a lighthouse, except for they could float on the water and try to give some sort of warning to oncoming ships that the sands were there and to avoid them. Now there is some speculation on this particular story of the Lady Love Bond. Researchers George B. And I will quickly say uh, it could also be pronounced George B. He. I'm not entirely certain. There's a couple different pronunciations online, so I do apologize if I am referring to that name incorrectly. And Michael Goss are both authors of the book Lost at Sea, Ghost Ships and Other Mysteries. And they both indicate in the book that they believe the stories to be part of a massive legend and not real ghost sightings. Now, I will say up front, I did not read the book myself. However, I did one of my articles did use the book as a source, so I'm going to go off of what they said about what they read um, as I provide you with the following information. So supposedly the details in the book state that surveys of wrecks during that time period did not mention any wreck of the Lady Lovabond specifically. And additionally, it says they couldn't find any newspaper articles either regarding the Lady Lovabond wreck. Uh, I did a really brief search uh, to see what I could find, but already it's a struggle finding newspaper articles going all the way back to the 1700s, so I didn't spend too much time poking around, so that's not to say that maybe there is something out there and it's just really hard to get to because it's so old, uh, but I didn't find anything either. The earliest mention in print noted in the book was published anonymously in the Daily Chronicle on February 14th, 1924. However, it lists the year of the shipwreck as 1724, which is 24 years earlier than most other accounts. George Goldsmith Carter also mentioned it in his book, The Goodwin Sands, in 1953, which uh, 
Bees and Goss's book specifically says that would be the first written account of Lady Lovabond besides the article in 1924. But this would be the first account that specifically has the year listed that everybody else seems to refer to now in terms of what year it actually happened on. And so since, either way though, uh, we don't see written mention of it until the 20th century, and so one thing that B and Goss brings up is that it is possible it could have been circulating as some sort of like oral story told through Victorian society in the 19th century, but if this is something that happened in the 1700s and we don't see anything in any sort of writing about it until the 20th century, they believe that is a good indicator that this was an invention of the 20th century for entertainment purposes and not a real shipwreck with real ghost sightings is their belief. A local historian did agree that the story was likely a legend and not a real tale, or, or rather multiple real tales of ghost sightings. To be specific, this is David Collier, a local historian, and I'm going to quote him really quick from the Independent article by Marx in 1998, paragraph 7. And I quote, The mid-18th century was the height of the deal smugglers. How better to keep people away from your nefarious activities than to invent a ghost story? We are not talking about spirits of the ethereal kind, but the ones found in bottles. End quote. So the historian specifically noted that there is a reason that this legend may have been invented if it is in fact a legend and that uh, pirates or smugglers could have diverted attention away from their own illegal activities coming through the channel. If people were too scared to sail through the channel because of a ghost ship, then perhaps they could smuggle more easily and not get noticed. On the flip side, marine archaeologist Dan Pascoe did explain that the sandbanks regularly shift over time, and it is possible that Lady Lovabond is sitting on the chalk bedrock buried underneath all of the sand, and at any point could be uncovered as the sands continue to move. Uh, he specifically mentioned this has been the case with some other shipwrecks they have discovered in this section of the channel, that... They have been hidden for years, and then one day the sands move and they just turn up. So he said, just because we don't see the ship Lady Lovabond in the channel doesn't mean it's not there. It could just be underneath all of the sand. Now, uh, the legend does live on. Uh, so regardless of whether these were real ghost sightings or if it was just a story made up to entertain or scare people... The legend does live on today. Numbus Collect, a European mint, has printed a coin with Lady Lovebond on one side of it. And on the evening of March 29th, 2014, six schools from the Dover District gathered on the beach and participated in a street theater event. This included poetry, music, acting, and paper lanterns. And they reenacted the ghostly couple being summoned to land from the water and then taking off in a wedding car for their ghostly honeymoon. <laughs> The Bully Wee Band also made a folk song called Lady Lovabond. I'm going to go ahead and drop the link in the show notes. Go check it out. I really enjoyed it. And I also came across while doing this research a poem I really enjoyed reading that has a whole verse in it about Lady Lovabond 
titled Shadowy Dreams, Lighthouse Keeper and His Ghost Ships by Phyllis Doyle Burns. So I will also drop that link in the show notes. Go check it out and support her too. But at the end of the day, what do you think is the story of Lady Lovabond? Do you think it's fact or fish? Oh my god. Fact or fishing? I think they definitely swim with the fishes. But... <laughs> It's okay. We we're both in the same boat today, unfortunately. Yep. <laughs> Apparently, Hopefully we're not passing through the channel, though. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> oh. Uh, so, <sighs> my thought on it is one: a ghost ships absolutely horrify me. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are so many out there that I've heard of, and they're fascinating too. Because I'm like, oh my god, I want to know more. But it's like, what the hell? But. <laughs> Like, to even, like, begin to, like, start with it, I, I don't even know where to start. But um, I wouldn't say it's absolutely, like, fiction. I'd say, like, there's definitely, like... <laughs> Salem wants to be included in the discussion. Salem wants to be included in the discussion. I'm glad that you could hear that. <laughs> Hi, baby. Anyway, as I was saying... Ghost ships absolutely, they terrify me, but I think it's more on the fact of, like, there's so much unknown in our own oceans and waters than what we know about space, and that's that's scary to think about. Um, I I honestly don't think that it's, like, 100% fact. I don't think it's 100% fiction either. I think some people have definitely seen some things, because... Honestly, I've seen some shit, but <laughs> um, it's just, it's one of those things that, like, yeah, it's very possible that this could be happening and people might have seen it. And granted, most newspapers aren't going to report on ghostly sightings, most using that loosely. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think it's absolutely like 100% fact and I don't think it's absolutely 100% fiction because obviously when you have more popular tales start coming forward, you're going to have people that are going to be like, well, I saw this too. And it's just like, they, they didn't actually see it. That happens all the time. <laughs> happens in true oh, crime yeah. a lot too. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree 100% on the whole thing that there's so much in our oceans that it's just like outer space. There's so much unknown and so much left to explore the oceans. Oceans and space are two things that definitely scare me. There's mm-hmm. just too much out there, too much unknown. Um, but I would rather go snorkeling in the ocean than go flying into space. That's you true. Wa- I would agree with that. <laughs> you want to watch me lose my absolute marbles? Make me sit down and watch, like, interstellar gravity. I... Oh, yeah. Oh, no. No, no. My yep. mom's like, it's not that scary. It's not even a scary movie. I'm like, I don't care. It's so anxiety-ridden that I cannot handle it. Oh, yeah. I'm the same way about space movies. If there's any sort of plot line or association with the idea of getting lost in space especially, that that gets me. Yeah. Like, on, like, <laughs> the factor of, like, aliens, like, Ripley... That one, not so much. Not so much. I'm good with that. It's the ones that take more of, like, that could-be-realistic approach, and suddenly, like, you're just flying out into nothing. Like, Life, for example. The horror movie Life. Great movie. Was very loosely based off of Alien. I love the movie. I hated when 
spoiler alert, she goes flying off into space. <laughs> and I just like sat there, mouth gaped, like internally screaming because I'm like, that is the most horrifying thing that I could ever imagine happening. Just floating yes. off into nothing, waiting for oxygen to just leave. At least oh, if yeah. I get lost in the ocean, like couple things are either going to happen. Either sea monsters exist and I'm going to get ate by the Kraken. <laughs> Sharks do exist. They will eat you once you start bleeding. <laughs> or I'm going to drown. So one of those things is going to happen. At least I have air though. So I'm not going to like completely suffocate right away. Oh Yeah. Oh yeah, and I don't have to. Sit, <laughs> I have to sit there and wait and watch the little red beeping light going oxygen low and just knowing my impending doom. Ugh. Yeah, no, thank you. No. no. <laughs> but yeah, I I definitely agree. I think it's possible there's some fact involved, like like I said earlier with the uh, marine expert. You know, it is totally possible that Lady Love Bond is just sitting on the bedrock and we have no idea it's there. Mm -hmm. And it might be uncovered one of these days, you never know. And it's also totally possible Lady Love Bond was one of the thousands of ships that has wrecked on Goodwin Sands, but maybe the story's a little off, you know? Maybe we, or not, I shouldn't say we, maybe people historically wanted to make it a big, dramatic, entertaining story of this disdained lover and all that and maybe that's not what really happened i mean if there's no survivors to tell the tale who knows what happened on that ship if it is true though that his mother testified he said he was gonna get revenge on the captain then i could believe it i could believe that something like that happened that does not seem based on what other stories i've heard of what people have actually done when being lost in love and and seeing their the woman or, or man that they're into being swept away by another. I mean, people can do some crazy things. Oh yeah. So. We've got tons of stories regarding that. Tons. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's... So I could definitely see that, that having been something that happened. I definitely see it in the realm of possibility. And I do find it. Um, th see, this is one thing that does make me tempted to go find that book and read it. <laughs> I find it interesting that supposedly there was a ship's log, like I said, on that one year that did record seeing this ship. And then, like I said as well, there was two, multiple sources that said two ships actually witnessed it. The first 50-year interval after the ship originally wrecked. Uh, so, I mean, I feel like that's got to be somewhere in some museum archive or something. There's got to be some paper trail we can dig up to, to say, yes, there was this ship's log and it did see a ship matching that description and whatnot. You know, I, I feel like, again, like I said before, when it comes to finding documents from the 1700s or even the 1800s, it's so long ago and there's been so many fires and wars and things that have happened that I think sometimes it's just hard to dig up those documents, either because they were not well-preserved. Yeah, so much has happened since, uh, I mean, the 18th and 19th centuries that, again, I think in some of these cases it's possible the documents were there at some point, and now they're just either in some dusty drawer somewhere that we just, the right person hasn't found it yet, or maybe it burned in a fire or got wrecked in a flood or something else happened, some sort of natural disaster or war, 
took it out. We've lost so much knowledge and information over the years through natural disasters and war and different things like that that I wouldn't be surprised if that happened either. Yeah, and even but, going on um, that fact of natural disasters when we, like, yes, she could the boat could absolutely be at the bedrock, but taking into consideration that sand does naturally degrade things, like that boat's been sitting there for hundreds of years, that wood is splintering in the water most likely, it's probably waterlogged, and things break down over time and decay, so that boat might not even be fully standing still. And that's a good point as well, is it's had the forces of the this sand rubbing against it and grinding it down for lack of a better term, as well as water, which water, of course, also degrades the material, especially wood and whatnot, mm -hmm. that, you know, even if there, like you said, there might be some remains left of it, but perhaps not enough of it that if we did come across it, we would know it as the Lady Lava Bond. We might just be able to say, oh, there was a shipwreck here at some point because maybe there's some bits of, of metal or something a little bit more resilient left, but yeah, much of the wood and paper or cloth or anything of that nature i imagine after a couple centuries has probably degraded quite a bit especially yeah. if it's been buried underneath all that sand that's been constantly shifting around it all these years well it's kind of like the bacteria that we're seeing that's currently destroying the titanic like they're not expecting it to oh be yeah in the next like what 30 50 years they're expecting it to be almost gone that's right, yeah. And so there's also things like that that at a microbial scale also degrade and break things down. So yeah, I definitely agree. It is totally possible that the Lady Love Bond was real and that these ghost sightings were real and that because it wasn't sighted in 1998 that perhaps for that reason is more why there might be some speculation on whether or not it's real. Uh, I could see that being a main reason why people might doubt it then. Uh, but as we've said before in the podcast, once you have an experience, nobody can take that away from you. So mm -hmm. I don't doubt that some of these ships really did see this, especially if they supposedly sent out lifeboats to go rescue people from a wreck. I mean, if that really is true, they obviously were taking this very seriously and believed what they saw. So I... I could definitely believe that this was a real tale and something that really happened as well. Yep. So, listeners, be sure to comment on today's Facebook or Twitter post about this episode and let us know what you think. Do you think that the story of Lady Levabond is fact or fiction? Um, or are you kind of taking the stance that we are that could be either or or a combination of the two? <laughs> uh, and another thing to think about that I wanted to leave you with is that ghosts are, in most cases that we hear about, they're usually of people that were once alive. However, when you think about ships, ships were never alive. So this was one thing I did come across when I was researching this, Ooh. is it was brought up, if, a, if there's ghost ships and ships were never alive, what does that say about ghosts? And so some people use that as an argument to say that a ghost isn't... Uh, However you want to describe it, you know, something, some sort of afterlife it, or some part of a dead person coming back. <laughs> some people think it's a, a slip in time that we're actually mm -hmm. seeing. 
like a repeat of what was happening, but it's just kind of like that like little time continuum. Like there's a slip in it. Yeah, exactly. So some people use this as a, a supporting argument for that theory that when we see a ghost, we're not seeing a deceased person coming back to haunt us as we often think of it, but rather we're seeing some sort of slip in the I don't know. Space time continuum. Words. Yes, the space time continuum. I should know this from Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> seen doctor who that is your side of things <laughs> i know right uh there's some sort of slip in the space-time continuum oh my word words there's some sort of slip in space-time continuum where we in the present are seeing something from the past as it's happening uh so that is another hypothesis of what might be causing these ghost ships so again like i said in regards to the story of Lady Love Bond, let us know what you think about that too. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Do you have any last commentary about Lady Love Bond, our first ghost ship? <laughs> no, no, just wow. wow. Is your is your mom singing in the background? No. That that might actually be the TV. Okay, I'm like, I'm sitting over here. I'm like, I'm hearing like a woman sing. I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> crap. I totally meant to listen and, and ask you if you were picking that up because I can kind of hear it through the wall. And I was worried the microphone was picking it up and I totally forgot to tell him to go turn it down before we started recording. So hopefully that's not too obvious. <laughs> no, 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 no. I just heard it just now. And I was like, uh, okay, uh, is that on my side or is it on your side? Because I had, yeah. like, a child giggling in the bathroom the other day. I was like, what the hell is this? Oh, that's fun. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know. You gotta love being a witch. Everything just gets drawn to you after a while, and you're like, why are you here? <laughs> anyway. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, that's a TV. So oh. I have no additives to put towards the Lady Love Bond. I do hope, archaeologically-wise... Personally wise, I hope that the boat's still there. That would be really cool to be able to actually say, like, we found it. Oh, yeah, um, that would be really exciting. Logically stating, though, and, like, DK stating wise, like, it, it's not as likely, in my opinion. However, there are still ships out there that are from the 1700s that are still basically decaying in the water because they're not made of, like metal or material like that so the wood takes longer to decay anyway so <laughs> it takes a while which that's really cool but anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah i haven't really looked into the science of how things decay in the ocean i mean i've definitely heard research about living <laughs> things little decaying in the ocean uh like dead animals and all the dead things mm -hmm. but <laughs> Or in Katie's realm. Humans. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't heard too much in the realm of the like wood and metal and more inanimate things decaying. So that would yeah. definitely be an interesting thing to look into a little bit more and see. Uh, is there even a chance that it's still there? Like you said, there are some ships that are really old and there's still some remains. So maybe there still is hope that we can come across it one of these days. But yeah. That'd be yep. really cool. But anyways, guys. Let's go ahead and wrap it up for today. Um, all of our socials are up right now. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can find all those on our website linked in the show notes down below. 
If you guys do have listener tales that you want to share with us, have suggestions for the show, please email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. And please make sure to put in your subject lining if you're going to do like suggested show topic or if it's a listener tale. That way we can go through easier and we can pull things out. Also, let us know if you want us to share it as a listener tales episode and if you're okay with us saying your name or if you're not okay with us saying your name and we can adjust accordingly. Yep, I think that about covers it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that about covers it. That was a mouthful to get out. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was. Well, thank you again, listeners, for listening again. And <laughs> be sure to subscribe to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And also, be sure to rate us. We always love to get reviews and thumbs up, likes, hearts, whatever it is on the podcast <laughs> venue yep. you're listening through. That helps um, us reach more people too, which is always a yeah. good thing. So if you like us, please be sure to subscribe and rate us. We really do appreciate it. And it will, like Katie said, help us reach more listeners like you. And then of course, be sure to spread the word as well to any friends you have that might be interested in hearing about some creepy things from time to time. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> we'll see you next week, guys. <laughs> see you next week.